We're back! We're back! It's a distraction! I'm rude! That's rude! I'm rude! Hey, man. Wow, then you really got... You found an upper register there I didn't know you had. Yeah, that's right. I can go a few octaves higher! Yeah, this is... People know that. Long-time listeners know that when Drew sang Mariah Carey's Vision of Love uh, <laughs> as one of the mashups. My, uh, the other song was Little Fighter by White Lion. My, my, my older son is 13 now, and, like, his voice has gotten deeper. And I'm still not used to it, and not in that sort of... Not in that sort of wistful, like, fucking Toy Story parent way where it's like, oh, he's never going to be a boy again. It's just that, like, it's it's funny because he's like, hey, dad. And I'm like, hey, son. Like, <laughs> I'm like, you want to go to the supermarket? He'll be like, oh, I don't know. Like, every word, everything I have him is I don't know now. Like, it's, they, they're actually, there are actually studies now that say that teenage boys, like, don't say shit. Like, they just never, they just never fucking talk. So it's like blood from a stone. But it's. It's fine. sooner or later. He's got your genetic material in in his body. I think yeah. sooner or later the kid's gonna whatever come down the stairs doing a weird dance and be like, "Hey, Dad!" Yeah, at some point, at some point he will unfortunately blossom into a loudmouth dipshit, but not right now. <laughs> and by the way, speaking of the polar opposite of that, it's our guest signature guest, Lauren Tyson. Hi, Lauren Tyson. Hey guys, how you doing? How Good. are you? I was you? worried that the loudmouth dipshit thing was going to be the segue, and I, I was, was like, "Don't do it, that too. No, son of a bitch!" <laughs> no, no, no. I'm much more, I'm much more clever than that. Actually, I have to, I do have to tell you two. I've tell you guys two stories. Uh, they're of course about me, because why wouldn't they be? Uh, All one of is that stories are about Drew. Today is the uh, the first day uh, at my kid's school that the mask uh, ban has been lifted. So they did not have to wear masks to school for the first time in all year. And uh, they chose to do so anyway. And at the dinner table last night, they were sort of like gossiping about like which teachers and which students, like which of their classmates wouldn't wear masks. They were like, well, I bet, I bet, I bet Bobby isn't going to wear a mask. And like started talking <laughs> shit about him. And I had to like, I had to personally, like I had to cool their jets a little bit. Cause I had to be like, I had to be the Republican at the table. Cause I'm a dad. And I was like, I was like, listen, they, they had safety reasons to lift the mandate. It's okay. So try not to get too judgy about it or anything. Because I had just gotten back from Montana like the week before. And that like cured me of pandemic brain. Like when I landed in Montana, like I kept my mask on on the shuttle ride to the to the town. And only like half the people did. Now I had that, you know, I had that sort of liberal pandemic brain. I was like, oh, I don't know about this. And then I went to like the ski lodge and, and like nobody fucking masked anywhere. And eventually I was like, like I, I remember one time I walked into a bar, I had a mask on, nobody had a mask on. They all looked at me when I walked in. Like I could hear a fucking record scratching in my head. Like the like, guy well, playing the piano in the corner stopped. Yep. Yep. That's me. The asshole wearing a mask. <laughs> you might ask yourself. And so then, but by the, by the end of the third day, it was also all, all, during that weekend, uh, it was when the CDC said, you know what? Masks, whatever. It was. I was like, all right. And on the shuttle ride back to the airport, I didn't wear a mask, and I was totally cool with it. So I am, I am now kind of okay. Where do you guys stand, Lauren, on how you feel about mask mandates being lifted and things like that? I feel mostly okay about it. I think back in like November into early December of last year, I was very much on the train of like, it's over for the vaccinated, we can do whatever. And I was very sort of out there about, you know, not wearing a mask and doing all this stuff. And then that, you know, obviously came back to haunt me a bit um, during 
Omicron and the horrible winter that we just had. And so I'm trying to be like a little more cautious in terms of getting back into that mindset. But I still like, if I'm going somewhere where I'm going to be like taking it off and on, like a restaurant or a bar or anything like that, like I have not really felt the need to go on, off, on, off. I have kind of started to to just keep it off. Yeah, yeah. it feels like you sort of feel the pointlessness of it when you like have it on for five minutes and then you don't. Like, <laughs> I am in agreement on that and yet also like i think the pointlessness of it is not uh that's not the word i would use like it's still i i I guess i don't like the theatrical element of it i never really have like it's always there's always been a like a sort of a tsa adjacent (laughs) vibe to the idea of like not wearing it at a table while you're talking and then as soon as you stand up you have to put your mask on like that was always transparently whistling past the graveyard to me like and unhelpful right I'm going to be someplace this weekend where I don't expect very much mask wearing. And me! It must be, be man. <laughs> no, South Carolina. We're going to Charleston. This oh, is the tri- wow. This is the trip. I don't know if I mentioned this. This is the same trip that we booked to go on on, like, leaving March 13th, 2020. Like, we had, like, basically, like... Is it the same, like, you re- kept postponing it? Or did you I cancel mean, and then reschedule? It's basically... So, I guess I'll, I'll take you inside the game, Lauren, uh... My my beloved <laughs> wife Kate, who is real and who I respect very much, everybody respects her. Hmm. Uh, definitely built a spreadsheet for our trip with like restaurant reservations and recommendations and second choices and whatever. She builds a spreadsheet for a lot of things, so that still like was living on her desktop. So we basically just once we decided that, that was where we were going to try to go, we just dusted that shit off and made sure that um, the places we wanted to go to were still open. And with one exception, they're all still open. So. We tried to run it back, but we also, and this is the part where I'm moving slowly back towards Drew's point with this, that like we made the decision uh, to go much more rapidly than we ordinarily would. I mean, we booked tickets and then that was basically two weeks before we were going to leave. And as the spreadsheet would indicate, this is a pretty methodical process for us most of the time. And in this case, it was like if we gave ourselves more time to think about it or if we gave the world another chance to get it's fucking ass kicked by this virus. It persists in not dealing with or understanding that like we would blow it. So we're right now, this is like as immune as we're going to get. It's like three doses. Plus we had the shit. It's a short trip. It's a short flight. Like we just basically decided to mash that button before we thought more about it. You'll, you'll do, you'll do groovy. I I mean, I think like, obviously I think everyone who has sort of like lived through the worst of this has a sort of guilt about, going out and doing stuff or trying to go back to normal. I shouldn't say everyone, but I think it's a pretty common feeling. But like, if you can't do this stuff when the case numbers are down, then it's almost like, what's the point, you know? Right. Yeah. Right. Like the idea of, and and that's the part of it where like, you know, I think the, how that like shifts into wearing or not wearing a mask or how I'm going to feel when my wife wears a mask into a place and I don't want to do it or where there's like, I mean, all of that is stuff to be negotiated, but Thankfully, I mean, it's a nice sort of luxury to be able to have it be fairly abstracted at the moment, you know, just given as protected as we are in the context in which we're going to be doing all of this stuff. I know Montana got its ass kicked by COVID, too, like in a really terrible, scary way. They were never wearing masks there. But at the same time, like if cases are down and you are as protected as you can be like, yeah, what else are you going to do? Uh, so I, I took my family to South Carolina last spring break, 
because we were like, we have to get the fuck out of here. Like, we have to leave. Like, just like we had And been that was your first, I remember talking to you about it, and that was your first time, like, going into a restaurant, and you were like, wow, they just don't give a shit here, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And my sons were like, mm, and then, like, a plate of nachos came, and we stopped giving a fuck because we wanted to eat. Yeah. But also, I took, because we stayed in a beach town, but then I took the, we all went to Charleston for a day, because we were like, well, you're near Charleston, we should go see it. But I hadn't done the shit where, like, you make reservations for anything. So everywhere I took the kids, like, was, like, closed or, like, full. Like, they were like, oh, yeah, Yeah. we we took it. It's like, I couldn't even get on a fucking, like, shuttle boat, like, to another part of Charleston. Because, like, and I got just got progressively madder. Like, I hadn't, like, I was still, like, it was one of my, like, bad moments that I got talked to the therapist about. Like, but, like, I was stonewalled everywhere. And I was like, this fucking sucks. And then it started to be, like, windy. And it was like, Like, you couldn't even, like, walk a st- across the street to get, like, a bag of chips without, like, the wind just being like, hello! <laughs> and so it was like, it, like, I want to go back with a person like Kate or, like, our COO, Jasper Wang, who knows their spreadsheets, to have a to have a solid plan about yeah. well, getting shit Yeah, well, I mean, this is the advantage of having people like that in your life, because it's not me. Like, if I were doing it, I would go there and then it just kind of, like, wander into some neighborhood and be like, surprised by everything i see like i would look stuff up online um but i'm not yeah capable of like planning three days ahead that's just not a skill i mean you know i'm probably going to be alive for another three four decades if i play my cards right i might develop that skill but at this point it's 50 50 i also might just not and will continue to live the rest of my life basically as a dog that's fine yeah i mean whatever it's gotten me this far i live like a dog i nap every day i uh i wear like i wear clothing suitable for like a dog sweater so it's <laughs> fine lauren are you gonna get out of new york anytime soon what are you traveling what are you doing this weekend lauren uh this weekend well i have to work on sunday so uh no no i i was just joking but you don't have to actually tell us what um, you're doing. no uh i'm going to northern michigan in may which i'm very excited about uh i kind of had a pretty annual thing where i'd go up with some people that i grew up with uh, and that hasn't happened the last couple of years, so I'm excited to get back, like, up north. Um, other than that, I'm kind of at the point where, like, all of my travel plans are determined by, like, who I know who is getting married and which of yeah. those weddings I actually Oh, the marriage to. run. Oh. So, you had that last summer, right? Then you, yeah, you had, like, had a whole pure too. Michigan residency I had three weddings and three weekends last summer, and unfortunately... Being, being in like, your 20s rules <laughs> can't beat it. <laughs> yeah. They're, like, more spread out this time around, which means, like, more separate plane trips and more coming back to New York in between, which is a little annoying, but uh, I don't know. can't complain too much. That does happen, though. In your 20s, like, all your friends decide to get married at the same time. Like, let's go get married, like, in successive weekends and not worry about the budgets of everyone who has to come. Well, it's better if it's successive because I hit, like, uh, Michigan and then I went down to Chicago and then I came back to New York and it was boom, 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 like, three straight weekends as opposed to, like, Michigan and back, Michigan and back, Michigan and back. Uh, it'll be this too much Michigan. It's also good to do it at a younger age. Jasper is in the middle of one now, and like because his friends are actually like financially successful, he's like, yeah, I got to be in Puerto Vallarta. Then of course, you know, it's, <laughs> went to it's Brazil, a short trip yeah. from there to Sao Paulo, and like, yeah, that's not everything. I had to do was like at the, um, you know, like a hotel near the airport in Chicago, and you just never left it, and that was the whole thing, and then you could get back on the plane and go home. That does happen when you get into the older professional realm. You're like, ugh, my friend's getting married in con. Fuck, I'm not going to do that. What a pain in the ass. I'm so over traveling to exact destinations to be with people I love. I don't want to do that. 
Uh, hey, we should probably talk sports. Uh, actually, we should talk about not sports because the MLB lockout rages on. And Roth, um, I wanted to ask you, and Lauren, I, of course I want to ask you too. I don't want to cast you. you out. Um, do either of you have a sense of where the standoff uh, stands at the moment? Uh, from what I've seen today, I mean, Lauren can probably, she wrote very eloquently about this last week when we, everybody got fucking faked out of their shoes by Bob Nightingale. So <laughs> like we're not all smarter than that by this point. But the there's this sort of attempt to give the impression of momentum right now. And there's a chance that by the time this podcast comes out, they've got a deal. Like the, the league wants apparently wants a deal by the end of Wednesday, uh, which is the sort of thing that the league says a lot with no apparent uh, concern for how false it rings after the third or fourth time they've said it. It seems like there's been some movement on a lot of this stuff, but the owners just can't fucking help themselves. So it's like they move on money issues, like the competitive balance tax, that they've been willing to raise that. But they're introducing all of these new conditions and caveats to that that, like, you know, even at this stage in the negotiation, they hadn't talked about before. So it doesn't seem to me like they're really focused on getting to yes in the way that you'd want. And I'm not sure that the goal isn't to give the impression of or to, like, legally call some sort of impasse and then let a mediator work it out. What and is... if that's the case, then we're not watching baseball till June, probably. Lauren, is that too doomy, do you think? No, I don't think so. I think I was too optimistic about this back in January, and I really underestimated the sort of shamelessness of the owners and also just, like, how cold it would all be. Um, maybe yeah. that's just, like, very naive on my part, but uh, certainly I don't think June is uh, too pessimistic. And I don't know that, like, it's it's also, like, the idea of it being naive. Like, I felt the same way, and it wasn't because I thought the owners would, like, you know, wake up like Ebenezer Scrooge on Christmas morning and, like, throw a shilling to someone who's going to go buy a goose. What like, day thought, is it to die? <laughs> it's opening day, sir! <laughs> but, I, but it... Like, I just thought that they were cowards in the... I mean, they are, but I thought that it would be the sort of thing where, like, as soon as they thought they were going to lose any amount of money, that they would make a deal and, and get on with it. And I think, I think the thing is they haven't lost money yet. The, right, and they're not going to lose money until they lose more than 25 or something regular season games, it seems like, because the real money is off the, the television deals, and those are somehow, like, the regional sport network deals, and those are set to, like, they don't start coming down off the promised fee until, like, after a month's worth of games. Mm -hmm. I just, if they go beyond that, I think I'd be surprised. But, like, that's a real stupid way to bag a month of games and screw up your season, too. Lauren, you're, you're frame, you framed it as sort of ruthlessness on the part of the owners and, and sort of, a, you know, obvious avarice. But is there also, is it possible that it is also just straight-up confusion on the parts of the owners that they don't necessarily agree and don't even know collectively what the fuck they want? I wouldn't be the one to, to say that for sure, but I, I feel like there's been a real calculated nature to these negotiations in terms of how long they were delayed and what Roth was talking about in terms of, you know, taking one step forward and then kind of two steps back with what they're offering. So it does certainly give the sense from the very, very outside where I sit that um, it was sort of their plan all along, you know, dating back to the end of last season, that they were always going to do this lockout. They're always going to wait until at least like a few games are canceled and you know i think their ultimate goal is to you know break the union entirely 
and I think the union has done a really good job of uh, staying on message and staying pretty together on this. And they have, I think, more support from the fans in a way that they wouldn't have in like 1994. But uh, yeah. this certainly feels like a, a plan put together by the owners. I don't think this is just them sort of guessing and you know looking at contracts or balance sheets or whatever and just sort of making arbitrary decisions about them. I think it's calculated. You'd think we'd be better at it by this point because I I think Lauren is exactly right there. And yet the fact that this seems to be happening along like a trajectory that they probably laid out at the very least, you know, like in meetings and stuff like that, just because it's a plan doesn't mean it's coherent or smart. That like these are still, you know, third generation fail kid billionaire, you know, scion types. Oh, and then you? also like weird investment group, like hedge fund mutant types. So it might very well be that like this, because it, it's hard to say that it looks like a plan because of how stupid and haphazard and stop and go it's been. Like they're not winning the, you know, hearts and minds of anybody by doing this the way that they're doing. And I don't even think that they're significantly moving the ball forward on the goals that they had. But that doesn't mean that they didn't plan it. It just means that they planned it poorly or that they planned it in like sort of the lazy way that somebody who is used to having a billion dollars and being weighted on hand and foot, that they're just sort of like telling some underling to go solve it for them and then fucking off to go do like Roman Roy things. And then they come back and are disappointed when they find out that uh, nobody believes them. Roth, can you pinpoint the brainchild of this sort of loose plan? Like, do you think it one specific owner or group of owners were sort of the drivers behind it or do you think rob manford himself was sort was had the ambition to sort of enact this i think this has been i mean this has been manford's job for you know basically as long as lauren has been alive i mean like he has been in the league doing this type of shit working as the hammer against the union you know on behalf of the owners like this is obviously the highest position he's held but he was doing similar stuff in the 90s under selig and that's how you know, he's been and how he's functioned. That said, I don't know. I mean, you can say that Jerry Reinsdorf has always wanted to break the, the Players Association. He has, you know, and he's that's been a pretty out goal of his for decades now. But I don't know that I can see a real, like, prime mover in any of this. There's, like, owners that are more or less cynical, you know, that, like, Houston's ownership group seems especially vile, and yet they weren't the ones that were going on the record as opposing any raise in the competitive balance tax. That was, it was a completely hodgepodge group of owners. It was the Angels, the Tigers, who's the other ones? The Rockies and somebody else? Diamondbacks. And the Diamondbacks. So the Diamondbacks, you've got this like desert creature like, libertarian shitheel owner. Okay, that makes sense. Artie Marino is going to be spending above the CBT no matter what because he's paying Mike Trout and Anthony Rendon and he's going to have to pay Shohei Otani. If he has any other players on the rest of his team, he's going to be over that. So why would you oppose raising it except for on principle? And then Chris Illich, I mean, honestly, like, I hadn't thought that the Tigers would be in that mix at all. And I'm interested in Lauren's thoughts on this because like Mike Illich was all about spending to try to win a World Series and I guess I just sort of forgotten that he died and kicked the team to one of his dipshit sons exactly but Chris Illich just like doesn't seem to have any blood in him you know he just uh yeah. doesn't have I mean like Mike Illich you know say what you will about the amount of money he had or any of that but like he did have a real passion for baseball 
and he did legitimately like just want to win a World Series and was willing to to spend to get that. Chris just doesn't seem to have that. Like it's a business that he inherited, and. That's all it seems like it is to him. A very lucrative business that could probably make more money if you put more into it, although it doesn't seem like that's really a concern of most owners. But that's the part of it that's weird, Drew, is that the teams that you'd expect to be at the forefront of this, like if you're looking at the teams that spend the least or the teams that are like the most known as calculating or... I'm trying to say this in like a non-judgmental way, but basically the way the Rays are, yeah, like teams well, that are be, all about... Be judgmental. That's your job. Yes. I mean, that, so teams that are basically the most like optimized, McKinsey-fied machines, those aren't the ones, and neither is it like the Orioles, you know, or the Pirates, teams that have like really consciously stripped the major league organization for parts on a long continuum. It's just basically rich people doing whatever they feel like. Broadly speaking, guided by the solidarity that uh, only billionaires get to enjoy, where it's the sort of they look out for each other and literally no one else. And it's hard to negotiate with that because I don't know where the leverage really is. Uh, can I go back for a moment? Um, because I've been reading about uh, the lockout and I've this is the this is the the off season where I discovered the existence of the competitive balance tax. What is it? I mean, it's basically it's the idea there when it was introduced a couple of CBAs ago was to sort of restrict runaway spending in a way that, you know, I guess at the time was sort of a problem. Like the Yanks were probably spending much more than anyone else, but it was seemed like sort of a solution in search of a problem to a certain extent. The idea of it there was that if you went over this certain amount that you would pay a penalty and also that the amount of money, like, and then that would be, sort of recirculated to other teams, which would not have to use it on payroll, but lower payroll teams would get money from bigger payroll teams, and then bigger payroll teams or anybody that would clear the CBT would be penalized for it. It wasn't intended notionally. I don't, I don't know how to do tone quotes in a podcast format, but it is, imagine Try. me doing the annoying thing with my fingers. It was not supposed to be a luxury tax. It was instantly treated like a salary cap, and has been treated like a salary cap more or less ever since. So there was like two or three teams went over it last year. And very few teams will go over it more than one year because there's... And this is with basically no penalties, with like rounding errors, low million dollar sort of fines. What the league wants to do now is basically introduce incredibly onerous penalties for going over it. Not just in terms of money, but in terms of losing draft picks. So basically, it would function as a hard cap, but not be named as a hard cap. And that would, you know, given how much the Players Association has invested in not being in a capped league, that's obviously not going to work. And everybody is sort of dancing around what it actually is and what it does, because actually saying the salary cap word gives the game away. Is that correct enough, Lauren? What did I leave out? Uh, no, I certainly think that's that's correct. Would Thanks. You I think I did a good job too. Yeah, would you, think, you say it's like um, your job or something? <laughs> um, just to play devil's advocate, is it possible that this CBT would um, would trigger more parity in baseball, like in terms of the on-field product? So, no. I mean, like okay. maybe. I think theoretically it could. I think the that issue like a really high salary floor. I guess right. That's exactly, I think, what it is, is that, like, all the, the stuff that's in this negotiation that was designed to sort of 
make teams compete. Because this is the thing with if you don't have a cap and you don't have a floor, basically the only thing keeping you from being the Pittsburgh Pirates and spending less money on your whole roster than the Mets are spending on Jacob deGrom next year and winning 55 games, like you can just do that. It doesn't matter. You get the TV money either way. And people will either come to the games or they won't. They mostly won't. But that's an increasingly small part of how teams make money. So the idea of like building competitive enhancers into the collective bargaining agreement, like the union wanted to do that. The owners very much did not want to do that. And I think a lot of that has been sort of left by the wayside. There's also only so much you can do. You know, again, it comes back to like, what's the leverage here beyond self-respect? And if these owners don't give a shit, then they don't give a shit. Like there's very little that you can do to like make the Orioles turn the baseball machine on and try to win next year. Like the only thing they could do to do that is spend and you can't make them do it. We also haven't uh, mentioned the, um, the expanded playoffs or the ownership push for yeah, expanded playoffs, which functions, I think, anti-competitively uh, in practice in that, you know, 14 teams make the playoffs. It's easier to make the postseason. The baseball postseason is so random that, you know, anyone who makes it can easily win the World Series. Uh, it just, like, removes the incentive to be the team that spends, you know, $250 million on payroll or whatever. Oh, that's yeah. interesting. I hadn't thought of it that way. I really just thought it was, uh, okay, we're going to get more TV money, obviously, if we have more playoff games. But I didn't think of it in terms of, okay, you really don't have to try as hard to, if you don't have to try as hard to make the playoffs, you don't have to pay, you don't have as, have as large of a payroll as other teams. Right. You can just yeah. sort of, you can sort of have a middling payroll, get in and, you know, hey, you roll the dice and you become the Atlanta Braves and you racism your way to a title. Like, that can happen. Yeah, it's funny to think that the Wilpons sold the Mets just two years before, like, the sort of team that they had every fucking year, which was a team that was probably going to win 78 games but could win 86, before that, like, somehow backdoored its way into being a playoff team. If they just held on a little bit longer, they might have finally achieved their dream making the playoffs every year while doing the exact same stupid things they always did. Uh, I want to talk about something... uh, else were related to this lockout. Before I do, Lauren, I want to note the three rule changes that the owners have sort of tossed in uh, as a way of, I, I assume, as sort of uh, a sort of Democles, I hope I have pronounced that right, to hold over the players. Uh, one is bigger bases. The second one is a pitch clock. And a third one is a ban on the infield shift. Uh, Lauren, do you like any of those ideas in a vacuum? Uh, bigger bases, I don't have much of an opinion on. I think that might just be like a first base safety issue. Uh, I could be wrong there. Pitch clock, I'm in favor of. I'm, I am a games are too long person. I apologize for that. Uh, and then banning the shift to me is ridiculous. Like I, yeah. I think it's so artificially anti-competitive. It's just like a bizarre thing to me to even imagine that you would limit freedom on the baseball field that much where you have to turn it into like football formations. Uh, yeah, that the, the shift thing is just nonsense to me. Has yeah, the, the shift thing to of- me seems like just beat it, you know, figure out a way to beat it. That's how everything in baseball has always worked. Like don't just make something illegal. Has the shift, the advent of the shift, cause it's relatively new. Has it affected either of yours enjoyment of baseball when you watch it on television? I don't think that's the thing that has. Uh, yeah. <laughs> right. Not relative to, I mean, I'm not as much of, I'm, I'm old and patient, but yeah, not as much as like games taking three hours and 40 minutes does, you know, like, right. That's not the ship's fault. That's like 
you know, Yankees, Red Sox on ESPN and everybody standing around for 90 seconds between pitches. That's really more of an irritant to me. Lauren, uh, for the record, Kyle Glazer at Baseball America said that the reason that uh, Major League Baseball wants larger bases is to increase stolen base success rates, increase the number of infield hits, and decrease the number of collisions and injuries around the bag. So safe, there is safety in one of those, uh, but there are different as- there are other aspects to it. That's um, interesting. I would be curious what the numbers look like on that in terms of because we're talking about really small margins. Uh, yeah, because they they showed they showed the larger base, and honestly, it's not something that I think I would notice had changed unless you had pointed it out to me like during the telecast or something like that. Like it's not like they didn't make it the size of a of a fucking. Uh, I don't know, like a parachute. Like it's, you know, yeah. it's a little it's bit bigger. between a small and a large pizza, basically. Yeah, yeah. It's, Which it's, is reasonable to me. The yeah. one thing I'll say that I think the shift has done to make baseball less fun, if it is indeed the shift, I think it's really more a confluence of other things, is that like there's a real sameness to how teams play now. And I think some of it has to do with shifting and defensive, like, sort of the understanding of that side of the ball is so much more nuanced and complete now that I think it's the emphasis on, like, home runs or strikeouts in the game sort of having that, like, button mashing, kind of like James Harden uh, two years ago type vibe to them, that I think a lot of that is, like, a response to that shit, is a response to, like, the idea of, like, because it's so optimized, they're like, well, it's really hard to hit singles anymore, so, like, just try to hit one over the fence. And, like... That makes for some kind of boring games to me. I like an annoying team. <laughs> well, you you picked the right one, Roth. I'll and you're you listening what. to it. Drew and Dave and Lauren. <laughs> Let's take a break and come right back with the fun bag and all that stuff. And we're back. We're back with Lauren Tyson. Lauren Tyson, we subject you to so much baseball talk. It's only fair that you gift us a hockey minute. Do you have a hockey minute in you right now? Yes, I do. Oh, my God. <gasps> Can we get some music under this for when, when it's actually playing? Uh, Stompin' Tom Connors in here. The hockey minute. With Brass Bonanza playing under it. But, yeah, anyway. <laughs> oh, we should, we should have a goal horn. <laughs> hockey minute. <laughs> hockey minute starts now? Yes. Now. Okay. Begin. Um. Gosh, there's a lot of different things to, to talk about. Um, something from last night that stood out to me was uh, Phil Kessel of the Arizona Coyotes uh, maintained his Ironman streak, Iron Man streak despite the birth of his child. He flew all the way to Detroit, took a 30-second shift, and then uh, flew back on a chartered plane while the game was still going on, back oh. to uh, Arizona where his wife was giving birth. I think he has the third longest uh, Ironman streak of all time, uh, about 900 games. Something like that. So uh, congrats to Phil Kessel uh, on a couple of different fronts there. I also want to just get my Stanley Cup uh, final prediction on the record. It's going to be the Calgary Flames over the Toronto Maple Leafs. Uh, you can quote me on this. You can cut this. I, I know the Flames lost last night, but the Flames have just been really, really exciting to me. And I think the West is such a easier path with the exception of the Avalanche compared to the East that I, I do just like really like their chances to, to go through. So you think Canada's really finally going to get shit together, huh? Uh, when you put it like that, um, <laughs> oh, maybe no. not so much. Yeah, like, you oh, you know what? No, I don't one think of these years, though, I, I sort of had this with the Washington Capitals for a while where they kept bombing out and they kept bombing out, and eventually they did break through. And I think 
with the maple leaves in particular, and I mean, the flames are just really good, but I, I do kind of have this feeling that the maple leaves are the next Capitals at some point. Ooh. Do you think that people that are hockey fans would get mad if I referred to them as the maple leaves? Like, if I, I pluralize it think, that way? I uh, think, I mean, maple leaf fans are a notoriously, like, calm and forgiving bunch. So, yeah, that's, uh, what I, that's what I thought. I referred to the Kansas City Chiefs as the Chiefs on here one time, and people still yell at me about it. Wait, I also want to shout out, I went to the new Canadian bar in uh, Chelsea on Saturday, and they had the uh, Ottawa Senators-Arizona Coyotes game on the television, and it was great. <laughs> the Sens were down 4 nothing, and I walked in, and they came back, I think they made it 5-4, and then they lost 8-5. to were there actual Canadians in the Canadian bar, like eating poutine and shit like that? I had poutine. I wasn't like checking passports or anything, but um, a couple of women next to me were also like very into the Sens Coyotes game, and it uh, it just made for a very good vibe. Did they have strong but, Canadian accents? Were they like, now he's got the puck? Yeah. I don't think so. No. Everybody just saying sorry back and forth to each other. And it was, it was a good I, I think point. it's great that there's a bar where you can walk it. Like that's the next step from like a soccer bar where you go in and it's sort of. People are watching like Burlingame FC against like Puddington. Like, you don't know who these teams are. They're in the third division. But the idea of like a Senators Yotes game, someone being like, you put that on? And they're like, yeah, we were going to do that actually because we're normal here. Like that's, that's I love great it. that those people have a place. I love it when Canadians, I love excited Canadians. Like it's like my stereotypical is Canadian thing is like Bob and Doug just be like, hey, well, you know. But then there's like Bruce, Bruce Boudreaux doing like cameras being like, and so what you want to do there is you want to be lots of fun and have a good time. And I love that. I love it when Canadians get fired the fuck up. I think it's so much fun. Uh, we got to get to the guy of the week and the fun bag. But I just want to note that Russell Wilson uh, is a Bronco now. So that's interesting. Also, the Packers signed some random quarterback that I don't even. Yeah, they brought back Matt Flynn. Which oh, I think is great. that's right. Very exciting. <laughs> hey, your guy of the week. Uh, I think this predates. Uh, our own beloved Lauren Tyson, but our guy of the week, David Roth, Gene Larkin. Do you remember Gene Larkin? Very well, yeah. He's a Columbia-educated, I think, pinch hitter for the Twins the year they won the World Series. He was. He was a Classic. Twin. Uh, if Lauren knows who Gene Larkin is, it's because she pulled his card out of a pack, held it up in front of me, and I said, hell yeah, Gene Larkin. <laughs> at some point, <laughs> remember yeah, some guys. He's video. not ringing a bell to me unless he's uh, any relation to Barry or Dylan Larkin. Yeah. Can I... I should we uh, give Lauren a, a Lions player out of respect? Uh, I will. Yeah. I, I can pick one. Uh, How just about Mike Utley? Huh? huh? There you go. Yes. We love him. <laughs> Inspiring Mike. Do you not know Mike Utley? Not offhand. When did he play? He was he was the lineman who was paralyzed. So that was my tasteless uh, guy yeah, reference. It is a, that's a tough one. I brought to, the entire uh, podcast for... down with that. So that was pretty. Yeah, it's tough. There was also there was a Lions player who was killed mowing his lawn when a truck driving down the street suddenly veered off the street and hit him in his lawn while he was mowing the grass. Yeah, I was in middle school when that happened. Eric Andolzek, yeah. RIP. So like, There's no the- reason why you should know about any of this stuff, Lauren. I was just going to well, I was gonna bring up Oz Hakim again, but that's just I, I feel like I've brought Oz Hakim up enough on this that's podcast yeah. that it's almost a trope. Lions he is kind of good receivers to remember. Johnny He's- Morton. Johnny Ooh. Morton. I, so I, was, uh, I have sent the last ones off. Uh, around Christmas, I do these like... If you do a gift subscription to uh, Defector and you send a receipt to me, I'll send you a bunch of random baseball, football, basketball, hockey cards that I just have in like a sack in my home or in the office. I did go in earlier this week to scoop up an Otis Nixon that I knew was there that I wanted to send to someone. And I was going through my cards that I had like liberated from tops when I was there because they were constantly throwing stuff out. 
and I was constantly going through it and being like, this is a perfectly good Johnny Morton rookie card. Like, I have a Johnny Morton rookie card uh, that I was going to send to somebody, and I still might, but it was uh, also, like, the sort of thing where I had forgotten that I had it, and so I had a nice little moment of being like, hey, check this out. That's neat. And then I realized it was worth 85 cents, and I just put it back. I just brought a bunch of vintage, like, hockey packs into the office, and I've only opened one of them, and I don't know if I'm trying to, like, space them out or, like hold off to, to do something special with them, but they uh, they keep staring at me whenever I'm in Where did the you get them? Did, you, did they give them, is that like a buyback at the Canadian bar? Like you... <laughs> Not quite. It was a Christmas gift, actually. I saw them on your desk the other day when I went in there, and I was like, any anytime I see what's obviously a top stadium club pack, there's like a little gland in my brain that fires, and I'm like, open that shit. But in this case, I knew it was a hockey one, and I knew it was yours, so I respected it. Would you like to hear some fun bag questions, Lauren Tyson? Yeah, let's do it. This is a tough one. This is from Casey. Casey writes in, is there a band that you absolutely love, but more because of their backstory than their music? For example, I've always loved punk and hardcore, and I knew the Sex Pistols were influential, and I liked a few of their songs, but they were never a favorite of mine. Then a friend recommended I watch The Filth and The Fury, and after watching that, I became obsessed with them and felt like I really got them as a band. Lauren, are there any bands like that for you? You know, who's a really great choice for this, actually, is The Monkees. Who ah! really ah! Oh, um, that's great. I think you can say this with a lot of different boy bands. You can certainly say it about like One Direction. Um, they're, you know, four separate people who, you know, weren't really like friends or anything. Unlike, you know, your typical band, they didn't like know each other. They were just sort of like put together. And if they wanted to achieve their musical dreams, they had to stay together and they had to keep making music together. Uh, and the way that their sort of like clean cut dorky image then kind of intersected with the um, the hippie years and LSD in the 60s. Uh, everyone should watch the movie Head, actually. Jack Nicholson co-wrote the screenplay, I believe, but it's like the monkeys movie and it's them kind of trying to blow up their image. It's very enjoyable. There's just like a lot of weird intersections in history with them. Uh, Mike Nesmith funding the movie Repo Man. Uh, Stephen Stills trying out for the band. Uh, Did he really? I would love like a really good monkeys yeah. biopic, honestly. Yeah, I think that that's a, a really good choice because they're this. I am like faintly aware. I mean, mostly because I'm in the same Slack channels with Lauren all day long, and so this stuff does come up. But like, I knew that the and McKenna also is a huge monkeys uh, fan. Yes, that, like I true. get the appeal of it, and yet the songs don't really do that much for me. Like they're not bad. They're just like they're you know bubblegum stuff from that era. But yeah, everything about them from the construction to like how weird they all were like personally uh, is fascinating. And then like I think you can only get that with a band that is thrown together by a bunch of like really cynical men with cigars in their mouths being like, kids love long hair these days. <laughs> and like just like rounding up some hot guys and seeing what happens. And then 50 years later, later yeah, they still like, I, I wouldn't say they have to, but uh you know, if they wanted to be playing in front of, like, decently sized crowds, they kind of still had to, like, you know, be co-workers still. They're music in, like, Shrek and shit. Like, they're, it's all over the place. I always yeah. think, when I think of the monkeys, I was, I was thinking about this. As like a, It was one of those things where it's like, maybe I should tweet this, but I didn't feel like doing it. Where I always wonder how many bands in my lifetime were just utterly fake. Like, like they didn't play their own instruments. Like, they didn't even sing in the studio. Like they just used session musicians instead, and then they were sitting out on the road, you know, with like backing tracks and shit like that. Like the the Millie Vanilli thing. 
like Millie yeah. Vanilli. So Millie Vanilli was like the most notorious fake band of all time. And yet I feel like there's no way that they were alone. It's just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, I believe yeah. that. This is, this is uh, like the story that starts with Drew questioning which bands are real definitely ends with him becoming one of those people that thinks the moon landing was fake. But I think there's some really interesting stuff between here and there. Uh, yeah, I, I also, I, I don't actually have a band that I love strictly because of their backstory. I only have the thing where if I read about a band, like if I, I read Meet Me in the Bathroom by uh, Lizzie Goodman about the, the indie scene in New York in the 2000s. Of course, I read about it. And I read about bands like, um, like Interpol that I didn't, I wasn't really into at the time. I was like, oh, I should really go check those out again because I was interested in them, and I was just as indifferent now as I was back then. But it, it may, or or I read Alan Siegel's uh, oral history of Prince's Batman soundtrack, and I was like, I should go listen to Bad Dance again, see see if I remember if I liked it. And it turned, it's, of course, it's a fucking mess of a track. It's it's a total. It's just a it's a very. It's an odd track, but not necessarily an endearing and lasting way, even though I love Prince. So I don't have one, but I don't have one where I'm like, oh, the White Stripes, they're pretending to be brother and sister, but they're actually divorced, but they're actually not. That's really interesting, and I got to, you know, now they're my favorite band in the world. That that never happened for me. Yeah, I think it's like, a, it's a add-on. It's not like, a, it can't be a motivator. At some point, you have to like the music or not. Yeah, I think I think that's right. Uh Jack writes in, why does it seem like 99% of people can't function without their morning coffee? Yeah, I used to drink a shitload of Cokes back in the day, but I never needed them to simply function. Lauren Tyson, do you need coffee to simply function, or can you live without it? I don't drink coffee at all. Um, Ooh, oh! Weirdly, the center sex. I think we're like writing about our caffeine consumption or something. That might be on the site by the time this posts. But yeah, um, yeah I don't drink any coffee, uh, so I can't really speak on that. I'll like very, very occasionally have like a coca-cola or something with like a sandwich or i'll have like a rum and coke at a bar but um what about tea do you ever have tea as a pick-me-up very occasionally if someone like offers me tea i will take it but i have never just like made tea for myself i don't think well i do think what it about follows adderall yeah <laughs> what about crack like, let's talk about that off air yeah <laughs> i i do think it follows uh sort of the addiction pattern where you know, because no, I didn't drink coffee either for, until I was like 35, and I didn't need it. And my wife is always like, "How the fuck are you awake, like at 8 a.m. and like, like talking?" And I'm like, well, "I don't know. Like, I'm just up." And I think it's that people who can't function without their morning coffee are just so used to having coffee that they have it out of their routine. You know, they get like the world's lightest, you know, case of withdrawal, and they're just like, "Oh, don't talk to me till I've had my fucking Starbucks or whatever the fuck." But yeah, for me, it fits into a routine that, like, I don't think I... There's very seldom is there the day that I need to be more caffeinated in order to, like, function. Like, mostly because, like, my life is not especially demanding, you know? Like, I feed my turtles twice a day. I don't have kids. I write a blog every couple of days, and then I do podcasts. Like, I could do that, like, mostly asleep. Like, you're hearing it now, you know? But I think that it breaks your day up into like I know what I'm about when I'm having a cup of coffee in the morning and then I get a little one in the afternoon as a treat sometimes if I need it or if I have earned it or whatever but yeah if you're if you are bringing enough caffeine into your body to like alter the shape of your day and personality then that doesn't seem right to me I think that there's just a conflation of the two that like routines are important uh whereas like massive Dave McKenna volumes of espresso going into your body every day. It's like, that's a whole different other 
thing to be concerned about. Well, th- in my case, personally, I can only speak for myself personally, but like, I'm less functional if I have too much coffee. Like that makes mm-hmm. like, and that makes me a cock. Like I'm not like, like I'm not like I'm not testy until I have my coffee. It's after I have the coffee where it's like, don't fucking talk to me. I'm all wired. And I'm about to fucking yeah. punch a wall. I think for part noise. of this is also that, and I don't want to speak for my parents here. My parents, the only fluids that they ingest during the course of the day are it's coffee. Like they don't drink water. They won't drink water. I've like poured it in their glasses at restaurants and just watched it evaporate untouched over the course of the meal. Then they'll never change on that. They will drink seltzer at dinner uh, and that's fine, but it's like mostly just because it helps them eat more effectively. So like, I think that really for a lot of people, coffee is hydration and they don't realize that it's like actually dehydrating them, but they're like, I need some sort of liquid or like, because if I don't, I feel bad. Right. Yeah. Uh, this is from Shane. Shane writes in, this one's a bit heavy. The latest Texas Chainsaw Massacre film has a character uh, who is a mass school shooting survivor. What is your opinion on that? Is that shamely, shamefully exploitative and not really needed in a horror film or mindful of what present day kids face, Lauren? Um, I haven't seen the movie, so I can't comment on it, but I do think horror movies and horror art in general has always had a pretty long history of dealing with like the worst of humanity um you know whether that's just like straight up murder or sexual assault or just like any kind of trauma i think i mean there are different kinds of horror and i tend towards the ones that are a bit sillier and lower budget and uh you know just kind of being shocking and obscene but not like disgusting or if that makes sense. Uh, yeah. I like the Evil Dead stuff is basically what I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, Can't be. Michigan. Yeah. Gotta put on first date. So I don't really mind bringing in a sort of like real life trauma in a story about a murder. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's like, I think it's in how you spin it. Like, but there's definitely an element of it to me where it, I mean, I don't know what to expect from the made for Netflix umpteenth sequel in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre series, but I'm going to assume that uh, it is not a sensitive treatment of trauma and or whatever. It's just kind of like if if it's used cynically, then it's bad. And if it's used in some sort of or at least tacky. And if it's used in any other way, then I guess it could work. I, I, I have to say that I'm fine with it. And I get I get very tired of pop culture vaguely alluding to what's happening to on trauma. the ground. Like, you know, where, yeah, it's just like, you know, oh, this is sort of a, you know, uh, uh uh, an allegory for like Trump, but it's like a fucking Batman movie or some shit like that. Like right. that gets <laughs> right. Like it's really old. Like it really does. Like I would like pop culture to reflect what's actually occurring in America because I think it's more interesting and more personal that way. And it can be handled badly, but if it's handled badly one time, that doesn't mean that the entire idea of doing it should be discounted entirely. Yeah. I'm also over the idea of just everything being vaguely about trauma. As like that just sort of being like a justification for like, you know, when like Thanos killed like half the people on Earth. To me, that was about trauma, if you yeah. think about it. It's like, I mean, I don't, like, you don't, if you're not going to think about it, just say you're not thinking about it. Don't try to like, like leave 9-11 out of this shit, you know? Well, that's it. It's a real have it both ways thing where it's like, oh, well, we're, we're current because, you know, we, we took down, uh, you know, a tower in this movie, but it's it's not the trade the World Trade Center towers. It's some other tower, and so it's it's kind of referring to nine eleven. But you can 
you could you don't have to think about 9/11 if you don't really want. It's just yeah. half-ass shit. I'm rewatching uh, The Day After Tomorrow for a friend's podcast, and that is a movie that is notionally about climate change, but because it's a Roland Emmerich movie, it's really about like people jumping over crevasses and like CGI waves. Ooh, like, sounds that's, good. He doesn't have any. Like, I'm sure that if you asked Roland Emmerich if he thought that climate change was bad, he'd be like, "Yeah, it's very bad." But that's like, <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> like, that's the level of thought that he's put into it. Is it's he not doing like, the one too, where it's the moon? Sort of yes. tries to take over the world. Yep. It's like moonfall. the moonfall, and like it's about the moon literally falling on us, right? Yeah, yeah. What I about the, the moon? That, it fell on us. Yeah, I think the moon has a it's consciousness. Like, actually, that's about what trauma. I got from the trailer is that the moon was like declaring war on Earth. Oh, yes. like the war, like the moon is like Unicron. It's like I've had the moon is not what it seems. <laughs> is basically the uh, the tagline to it, which is. Again, as concepts go, it's like something that a nine-year-old would say to you, and you'd be like, terrific. Like, that's, <laughs> you're on drugs, man. Uh, final but, uh, one. This is from Craig. He says, not enough people talk about the amount of germs and bacteria that must be all over your average belt buckle. The belt buckle is handled in that brief window of time between pooping and hand-washing. Also, while pooping, the belt buckle is at very high risk of touching the bathroom floor. Should we be more worried about belt buckles as super spreaders of disease, <laughs> Lauren Tyson? Oh no, I'm worried now. <laughs> I I don't think I've ever gotten like COVID from a belt buckle. I don't. No, I don't. I, I'm way more. Yeah, I'm way more concerned about other people than I am about belt buckles. But that's this is the best kind of uh, fun bag question. The one that kind of first of all defamiliarizes you with something that you've stopped thinking about, such that it's upsetting. And then I think. For me, the greatest fun bag question of all time is you go into a truck stop bathroom and there's an untouched hoagie sitting on a urinal. Do you eat it? And like, that's obviously an extremely upsetting thought exercise, but it's the sort of thing where like the fact that my instinct is, yeah, sure, whatever, what's on it? Does it have hot peppers? Is like, that's embarrassing. And yet, like, I would never have had that thought if this question hadn't jogged it loose. And so I would never have thought about my belt buckle until this person made me scared of it. So thanks. <laughs> On that note, we have to <laughs> leave the podcast. This is Brandon Nixon, Corinne Wallace are our producers. Daisy Rosario is our executive producer. Our theme song is by Kirk Hamilton. You can listen to ad-free episodes of The Distraction only on Stitcher Premium. Thanks to us, you can get a free month of Stitcher Premium right now. Just go to stitcherpremium.com and use the promo code DISTRACT. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever it is that you listen. And subscribe to Defector.com too while you're at it. And while we have you in the plug zone, uh, Defector's office hours are migrating over to the AMP uh, app, uh, which is available on iPhones right now. Uh, you can learn more by following us uh, at Defector Media. And Roth and I will also do a, uh, a little live stream every Friday at 11 a.m. So find out more at our Twitter stream about that. Uh, and that's it. We'll see you next week. Thank you, Lauren Tyson. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Thanks, Lauren. Bye. Bye.